Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. The 203rd edition of the Four Corners Podcast starts right now. From the Basketball Podcast Network, this is the Four Corners Podcast. We win! 20 seconds left to play. Goes back to Michael Jordan. Jumper from out on the left. Good! Fred Brown looking. Oh, way to Worthy! Worthy five! The Star Heels are going to win the national championship! Weber front court. Carolina with foul. He takes the timeout. Technical They're out foul. of timeout. Technical foul. Technical foul on Michigan. They're out of timeout. And the party is ready to begin on Franklin Street. Gets it back out to head. Long outside shot. Short rebounded. May. It's over. Carolina has won the national championship. 89-72. And how about them Tar Heels? They are the national champions. Pump fake for three. Too strong on the shot. That's it. The Tar Heels are the national daggum champions. Love guarded by Keels, gets a screen, pulls up for three. Got it! Caleb from straight away! Here are your hosts, Josh Marlowe and Anthony Pagnotta. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Four Corners Podcast. We are powered by Carolina Electrical Services. Just Josh here with you guys today. As earlier today, I had a chance to talk with the Athletics Brendan Marks, he's a beat reporter that covers both Duke and Carolina basketball, and I had a chance to bring him on to talk about the Tar Heel season so far as we're halfway through the ACC uh, point of the season, and we're getting really, really close, just over a week away from that first matchup with the arch-rival Duke Blue Devils. So without any further ado, let's get to that conversation with the Athletics' Brendan Marks. I am now joined by Brendan Marks from The Athletic. Brendan, good afternoon, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Well, Brendan, I appreciate you uh, taking some time to come on the podcast and talk a little Carolina basketball with me. And after the win the other night, Carolina now sits at 15-6 and six overall. They're a respectable 7-3 and three in the ACC at the halfway point of the season. Considering this team started preseason number one and the favorite to win the ACC, how would you assess the season so far for the Tar Heels? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, as you said, this is a team that started the year out as uh, the number one team in the country. You know, not just picked to win the ACC, but, you know, picked by a lot of people to, to sort of redo the run that they had gone on last year, get back to the Final Four this year, and, and maybe actually cap it off with the championship. And so when you look at it through that context, uh, being unranked and, and sitting at, as you said, 15-6, in the conference, it's obviously not where I think a lot of people would have pegged them to be. That said, I, I hesitate to say that this season's been a disappointment so far because considering where North Carolina was in the first month and a half of the year versus where they have been since, oh, about the middle of December, it's been a night and day different team. Carolina's won 10 of its last 12. Uh, it's starting to sort of look like that team I think a lot of people thought that they would be this season. And so I hesitate to say that it's a total disappointment. 
um, especially as things, at least with you know four straight wins right now, are starting to look a little bit up. I want to go back, Brendan, to last Saturday where Carolina beat uh, NC State in the Smith Center 80-69. to And the headline, of course, from that game was the accomplishments individually for Armando Baycott, where who became the most decorated rebounders is how I'm, uh, how I'm phrasing it in terms of his rebounding prowess. He became the all-time leader in overall rebounds. He passed Tyler Hansborough in that category. Then he passed Billy Cunningham for most double doubles at UNC. You've been you've been following his his entire career at UNC. What stands out to you the most about Armando Baycott's rebounding prowess? Yeah, you know, I, I think first of all, uh, it's a huge testament to Armando in terms of him sticking it out as long as he has and continuing to get better. Like, you know, let's not forget that this kid's freshman year, he was on the worst team that Roy Williams ever had as a head coach. And there's a lot of dysfunction there. The next year he loses Roy Williams as a head coach. It, it was very understandable if Armando had taken a different option, but instead he's stuck it out at North Carolina. And now you've sort of seen the growth that you have. I, I think the biggest thing for me that stands out is the fact that as he's gotten older, um, he, he really has continued to do the same things. I think as guys get older, a lot of the time they try and show off for the pros and they try and stretch their game out. And like, he knows what he is. Earlier this year, he called himself a high-end garbage collector. Uh, <laughs> I, I just love, I just love that self-awareness, and that's basically what it is. Like, this is a guy who uses all of his size, uses all of his strength, and just gets in the way. Um, you know, when when you're talking about some of the technical aspects of rebounding. When he's around the rim, it's so hard to box him out just because of how big he is. And and even if you think that you've got him off, for his size, he's got surprisingly good footwork and can sort of finagle his way around you. So you put that together with, you know, sort of I think he has a pretty quick second jump. Uh, obviously, you know, he, he has a propensity for, I think, tracking angles off the rim. You, you put that all together, and this is a guy who is the best rebounder in school history. And, you know, I think when all is said and done, is probably going to go down as one of the best big men to ever play in Chapel Hill. A lot of a lot of th- uh, things we do in sports talk is we talk about legacies, and this might be an unfair question because his career at Carolina isn't over. But let's just say, for all intents and purposes, you know, today, what is his legacy at the University of North Carolina? Yeah, it's it's interesting. When uh, he was getting close to setting the record, I started sort of going back through and. I made a chart of the rest of the top 10 rebounders all time at UNC. And there were a couple of exceptions. You know, Kennedy Meeks was an incredibly decorated individually. Um, Bryce Johnson had one season where he was really decorated individually. But but Armando has sort of been the exception to the rule and that all of the rest of these guys have just won more. And so I think if you're strictly talking about on an individual level, um, you know, I think to me there, there are a ton of good bigs at Carolina, but – He's definitely in that conversation of being top 10 all time. You know, I think you put him up there with, you know, I don't know that he's quite at the worthy Hansborough Perkins level, um, but certainly in terms of some of the other guys you throw up there, you know, the Zellers, uh, Sean May, uh, Rashid Wallace. I mean, like these are some really iconic figures and his numbers keep him in that company. Obviously, like you mentioned, the differentiating factor is what's he going to be able to do in the postseason? And, you know, if, if he is the reason that North Carolina sort of comes back and swings the tides and, you know, either wins the ACC regular season or wins the ACC tournament title this year, or, you know, like I mentioned, if they sort of uh, complete complete the comeback from last season and go all the way and win the title, then I think you're talking about him, you know, really getting into that rarefied air of, you know, potentially being a top five big all time. Uh, that's, I think, the point where, and we might see this even if North Carolina doesn't win the title this year. You know, him having his jersey honored at the very least 
and if it gets even better, having his jersey potentially even retired. Another guy that we'll be talking about from a legacy perspective when his career comes to an end is Caleb Love, who has been mired in a season-long shooting slump all season. But the other night at Syracuse, I think he played his best game of the season. He scored 15 points, was 4-7 from the field, 3-5 of five from behind the three-point line. Do you think he turned the corner the other night with that performance against the Orange? It was certainly encouraging, uh, but I hesitate to say that he's turned the corner for two reasons. One, uh, it was one game, <laughs> and you know I try not to buy into the small sample sizes too, too much. Uh, and secondly, against Syracuse's zone, they, they were practically begging this guy to shoot threes. I mean, he comes down, and uh, I, I don't know the exact numbers, don't have them in front of me, but you know I think he took all three of his threes in probably the first 15 or 20 possessions that UNC had offensively. Uh, so he was not afraid to let it loose. I I think that for Caleb, and the one thing that I was probably most impressed with in terms of that Syracuse game was his shot selection and also just his shot frequency. Like, when you have a guy in the post like Armando Baycott, he, he, I think, has finally realized that this team sort of lives and dies by Armando. You've also got a guy next to you in R.J. Davis who, quite frankly, is playing at an All-American level. What Caleb needed to realize was that he can be sort of the difference maker in terms of wins and losses. And he he doesn't necessarily have to be the driving force, but if he doesn't make enough bad plays, you know, it's avoiding those mistakes, those self-inflicted turnovers, the horrible three-pointers, the runners that have no shot of going in. That's when North Carolina loses games. But you look at what he did against Syracuse. You know, you just mentioned the numbers. I think it was the efficiency. I think it was not taking too many shots. I think five assists, even with two turnovers, is, is you know right where he should be on an almost every night basis. That is the Caleb Love North Carolina needs. It does not need a guy who's taken 15, 20, 25 shots a game. You know, as we've seen this season, that, that just isn't where he's most efficient. It's not where he's most helpful. So um, I, I think Syracuse is definitely a step in the right direction, but I'll need to see it a few more times before I'm convinced that he's fully turned the corner. You know, the thing with Love and even R.J. Davis is they're volume shooters, and I frequently say volume is just a cute way to say that you're inefficient, and that's what Love's been for the majority of the year, shooting below 40% from the field and below 30% from three. How can Hubert Davis help him become more efficient on the end of the on the offensive end of the floor? Yeah, well, I, I think if Hubert Davis knew what to do with him, he would have by now. Uh, <laughs> you got I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that this is the guy who drove William, Roy Williams into retirement by any means, um, but but certainly when you have a guy who, you know, like you mentioned, does have the the volume that he does, who's used to having the ball in his hands. And a guy who I, I think has gotten better at doing this this year, but maybe isn't all the way there, is just playing without the ball in his hands. Like, you know, so much of, of AAU basketball, which is where Caleb, you know, really made his name coming up, is you're focused on what can you do with the ball in your hands and less on what you do without it. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've started to see R.J. Davis really excel in that regard. Um, you know, he's been great coming off screens. He's been great coming off curls. He's been great in the pick and roll. Um He's been really, really adept at finding space for himself and finding pockets and making the right reads and and doing it all sometimes without the ball. That's sort of the next step for me, for Caleb. Um, And the other thing is, like, look, I I think that Hubert Davis had to probably have a pretty realistic conversation and say, like, hey, look, like that Alabama game earlier this year, I I know it's four overtimes. That can never happen again. (laughs) You are never, you are never attempting 35 shots in a game again. And especially with the other guys North Carolina has on this roster, 
um, you know, getting RJ involved, getting Armando involved, heck, getting Pete Nance and Leaky Black and, and DeMarco Dunn off the bench involved, I think we've seen that that is more beneficial and more, you know, more of a contributing factor to North Carolina winning games than Caleb just, you know, getting X number of field goal attempts. You mentioned R.J. Davis. You said he's playing at an All-American level, something that I haven't really thought of a whole lot this season. But he overcame a, a very slow start to the season and has established himself as the floor general for UNC. His head coach, Huber Davis, often identifies him as the heart and soul of the team. Why is that? I, you know, I, I think anybody who has met RJ and I've known RJ since high school and have, have gone up and spent some time with his family and been to his hometown, his high school. Um, he is just a guy that doesn't know how to do anything less than 100 um, percent. You know, he, he is going to die for every ball, as we saw at the end of the Syracuse game. Mm-hmm. He's going to take that charge or elbow in the face or whatever you want to call that last play. He, he's going to be the guy who takes that, even though he's not the biggest on the court. I, I think his play very frequently um, is much bigger than his like frame is. You know, he he plays bigger than a six foot tiny guard, and you see that reflected in his rebounding numbers. He's averaging more than four. He's averaging almost six rebounds a game. Um, he just plays bigger than himself because I think he really has that heart and that drive. And yeah, he you know I know a lot of people maybe aren't giving him the credit for this right now. He is playing at an all American level. The Syracuse game was the first games this month since the new year that he hasn't had at least multiple three-pointers. He still finished that game, you know, obviously made the game-winning play, had five assists, only one turnover, had five rebounds, uh, two steals. Like, he he just makes winning basketball plays. And um, I know that Caleb Love gets a lot of the headlines, but right now, you know, the second half of this season that R.J. Davis has had since he got back from having dislocated finger early on, I mean, he, he has been a huge reason why North Carolina has been rattling off wins at the rate it has. Another guy that is is trying to find his own footing so far this season has been Pete Nance, who I thought after, you know, the the shot he made against Ohio State, that was going to be the turning point from him individually. That didn't really happen. We knew the back injury might have really hampered that. Then he had, you know, the, the, the biggest play on offense for Carolina in that win over Syracuse on Tuesday night. My first question about Pete, though, is, why has he struggled to find consistency so far in his lone season in Chapel Hill? Yeah, I think you can look at a couple of different things. Um, you know, number one, there is the like interpersonal aspect of it. So you think about all the pieces coming back from last year, and Hubert Davis has said this multiple times throughout the season. You know, there's some element of not wanting to step on toes. You know, a feeling like you have to fit in, and that you're coming into something that's already preformed. And, and Hubert Davis and, and the players have gone out of the way to say. Pete, we brought you for a reason, buddy. You know, we they've only been with me for a year, and this is a team that, you know, obviously lost Brady Manick, but is a different team from last year. And so I do think that interpersonal factor uh, is one that you really can't you can't downplay it. Like that is a, a big part of the reason why he's had some inconsistency. And the second part of it is just some of the things he's being asked to do are, are not quite the same as the things that he was asked to do at Northwestern. Like, he's not going to be the same volume three-point shooter that Brady Manick was. And so you're trying to find ways to get him looks. Um, you know, I think defensively, against some of the size that some of the bigs in the ACC have had, I think he struggled a little bit. Um, he's he, he very recently has improved a lot as a rebounder, um, finally starting to see him come into his own in that respect. Um and, and look, here's the thing, like he, there's a reason that this guy has the bloodlines he does and that he's now playing a fifth season in college. You know, there's a reason that he's not already in the NBA like his brother is and he isn't in the NBA like his dad was. Like there are some athletic deficiencies here and, and he's still a really good player, but 
Uh, I, I think it's going to be a continued feeling out process with Pete Nance, um, even though obviously against Syracuse, you know, you could argue that was his best game of the season. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you kind of told me that you had basketball people tell you back over the summer that Pete Nance was the best individual basketball player on the team. If 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 that statement is true, with that in mind, has he underwhelmed so far this season? I, I don't know that he's overwhel- underwhelmed. I, I think he's just really in th- a tough situation. Like, he was never going to be Brady Manick 2.0, and nobody was. There was nobody North Carolina could have brought in via the transfer portal or via high school recruiting. Even if they had gotten Gigi Jackson to, you know, reclassify and stay and come a year early, and if he had been filling that spot instead of Pete Nance, even then you weren't going to be getting a guy who was the same as Brady Manick. And, and that, I think is something that has been really hard for North Carolina fans, but also the players on the team to grapple with. And and not just from the interpersonal aspect of, you know, uh, certainly Brady and Pete have different demeanors. Brady, I think, was a little bit more, um, he was less polished than Pete was, a little bit raw in terms of his emotions and how he would express himself. But also the way that North Carolina was playing at the end of last year was almost, it, it was so beholden to the way that Brady Manick was shooting the ball. I don't know if people realize this. By the end of last season, during the NCAA tournament, during that sort of February run where North Carolina figures it out, Brady Manning got to the point where he was averaging about 10 threes a game (laughs) and making about 45% of them. Like, that's crazy volume, and it's even crazier efficiency. But that was the reason North Carolina was going to be able to, you know, have the success that it did in the postseason. Because when things broke down on offense – and when teams tried to trap you in the pick and roll, and when they would hard hedge you, all you had to do was work the way the work the ball around until you eventually got to Brady Manic, and you knew he was firing. You knew it. Even if it didn't go in, teams would respect it. And Pete doesn't have that signature play style. He's much more well-rounded. Um, he's definitely a better defender than Brady was. He, I think, is a, a significantly better passer than Brady was. Um, you know, I, I think his IQ is really high. He's, he's, you know, obviously doesn't have the three-point volume, but is a fine three-point shooter. The thing is that when Brady was doing all of that, it was sort of covering up for some of the other inefficiencies in North Carolina's offense. And now what we're seeing is when that ball pings around and it finally ends up in Pete Nance's hands, you don't really know what's going to happen. With Brady Manick, it was a given outcome. So underwhelm i don't know i think uh, you know according to perception perhaps um but it was always going to be a struggle i think for pete nance this season and i'll be really interested to see what happens in the future and who sort of fills in at that stretch forward spot moving forward because being a year from uh, a year further removed from the brady manic experience uh, i do think that the next player who sort of fills in at that slot is going to have different expectations than pete has this season We're talking with Brendan Marks, UNC and Duke reporter for The Athletic. A few more questions, Brendan, and I'll let you go. And my next one, you might might yell at me. I asked Adam Lucas of GoHeels.com this same question, and I'm sure you've probably gotten it in your mailbag. But we we entered this season, I think, with this belief that Dontrez Styles was going to be a consistent player for UNC off the bench. That hasn't happened, and I think we're all trying to figure out why. Do you have an answer, some insight you can tell us as to why Styles hasn't gotten the minutes he got in March of last season so far in 2022-23? Yeah, you know, I think it's a couple of things. I think, you know, people get, first of all, you know, as you said at the end there, the minutes that he got in March of last year, um, you know, those, those are sporadic minutes. Those are certainly not consistent minutes. I mean, I, I know that we talk about, you know, the three pointer against Baylor and that was, you know, 
as big a shot as maybe North Carolina had individually other than the Caleb Love shot over Mark Williams. But, like, in the NCAA tournament last year, the 25 minutes against Baylor, after that, five minutes against UCLA, one against St. Peter's, three against Duke, uh, did not score another point after the Baylor game the rest of the NCAA tournament. So it's not like that was a stepping stone. You know, this year was supposed to be the stepping stone. Right. Uh, a couple of reasons why I think we haven't seen him play the minutes that were expected. Number one, uh, he, he's playing in a crowded group. You know, you you have Armando Bacon obviously is a given. Caleb Love and R.J. Davis are a given. Leaky Black is a given. And, and then so where do you sort of carve out your role? You know, he, to earn minutes, has to be better than Puff Johnson. He has to be better than Tyler Nickel. He has to be better than uh, Jalen Washington to some extent. He has to be better than Justin McCoy. No, he's got to be better than DeMarco Dunn. I don't know that he is there from a skill perspective yet. You know, this is a guy who is a really, really great athlete, has a ton of physical tools. He's got a great frame, 6'6", 210. Just really isn't all that skilled as a player. Um, You know, he's only taken, you know, three. He's taken six threes this season. He's made one of them, so he's not really stretching the floor, which means you kind of have to play him as a small ball four where he's going to be naturally disadvantaged. He's got a crazy high turnover rate when he is in the game. Um, and, you know, I think he's the biggest beneficiary of anyone on the team this season of backup quarterback syndrome. And I see it at Duke and you see it at North Carolina a lot of years. Uh, it's the guy who's not playing. It's the potential of what they could be that people get excited about. And the fact of the matter is, if this guy had more skill, he'd probably be out there. So um, I know it's been frustrating for North Carolina fans not seeing Dontrez get more time. Um, but again, if there was a reason for it, he would be getting those minutes. It's not like he did something to personally offend Hubert Davis. Uh, <laughs> it's just a matter of playing the best guys, and, and right now he's not consistent with cracking that rotation. Let's go back to Carolina's loss at Virginia Tech in December, a game that Carolina would trail by as many as 18. And when they deployed a full-court press, that was kind of, you know, what I thought of it was, was whenever you saw from Roy Williams, that was them waving the flag. That was the last resort, but it allowed Carolina to get back into the game. And that led Huber Davis to go into the press conference and say that was going to be a part of what this team does on the defensive end in the court, become a bigger part of its identity. But yet we haven't really seen it on a consistent basis, which has driven me irate because I think he coaches it really well. And I think it's been very effective whenever he has used it. Why do you think he has been reluctant to use it as much as he said he as he said he would after that loss at Virginia Tech yeah and and first of all I agree with you I think that that was really effective in that specific game um, and I think that it can be effective for North Carolina going forward I think it's something that we will see again I don't think it's something that uh, Hubert was just lying to our faces and said I'm going to do this and now he's not um, I, I think there are a couple of things that go into it number one is you got to consider who you're playing against um, you know when you have that full court press you know why I, I, this was a great question that I heard somebody ask recently is why don't more teams at the NBA level use a full court press and it's because the ball handlers are too good and it exposes you defensively on the back end and so when you are playing certain teams who have guards like that you know you look at some of the guards that North Carolina's played like you know Bryce Sensabaugh Ohio State um, you know you're talking about at Michigan Jet Howard Ty Appleby at Wake Forest um, you know Virginia obviously Kihei Clark is one of the better ball handlers in the league like yeah. Terquavion Smith, Joe Girard, like these are guys who know what they're doing. And so uh, if you play that full court press, sometimes you can end up putting yourself in a bad situation. So I think that's one element of it. Two, 
I like to think of the press as more of a tool in a toolbox than a regular play call. Um, I think it's more of a utility tool. So, you know, Hubert Davis has done some different things defensively this season. UNC has changed the way that they, uh, you know, they've changed up their ball screen coverages a couple of different ways. You know, they have switched one through five at times. They've mm. done man-to-man. Um, sometimes they hard hedge. They'll ice on occasion on side ball screens. Like, they do do a couple of different things. Um, and I think that the full-court press and, and even a zone, if we, you know, ever see that with any semblance of consistency, <laughs> those, are, those are like uh, – additional tools, additional different looks that this team can give. But if you show them with any sort of consistency, then then teams are going to scout a little more consistently. And, and again, like I said, if you have a capable ball handler, you're not going to have any problem with it. So I do think that North Carolina could use it a little bit more. I also think it is, you know, somewhat opponent and matchup contingent and driven. Um, but no, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I thought that we would see more of it than we have. Uh, I just try to look at it from the perspective of if we have it, then then what's the logical reason behind it? What have you learned about Hubert Davis in his second season as Carolina's head coach with a lot more weight and expectations upon his shoulders uh, th- this go-round as opposed to his first year? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I have learned that he is pretty steadfast in who he is. And I think last year, obviously, there was a lot of newness for him, for us, for fans, for the team. You're just trying to figure out what is this guy like? How does he operate? What does he demand? What are his non-negotiables? And, you know, as media, we're trying to figure out, you know, what are the things that this guy will interact with? What are the things he won't interact with? What are the things that he likes to talk about? What are the things that he's, you know, less <laughs> less ready or willing to talk about? And we heard from him throughout all last year that he wasn't going to make changes. He was just going to do it his way. And it would either work or it wouldn't. And it worked. And did UNC have some, you know, beneficial things happen? Yeah, but also he coached his team into some pretty, you know, advantageous results. And so... This year, when things weren't going well at the start of the year, you start wondering those same questions, and he has the same answer. Look, I'm going to do things my way. I'm not going to change it. And um, the cool thing for me has been seeing him evolve on the job. You know, like going through that four-game losing streak, you know, hearing his demeanor change and, and hearing him demand more accountability publicly. I wrote a story earlier this year, and, you know, I, the biggest thing I learned during reporting that was like, this live action side of him that we saw during the final four last year, it's live action, Tracy. Um, <laughs> that, that side of him has always been there. We just weren't necessarily perfect to it. And, and so I think, you know, I've learned certainly that that is there. It is uncompromising. And, um, you know, there might be some losses and there might be some things that have gone, you know, not the way North Carolina would have hoped, but, but he's pretty uncompromising. And at the end of the day, it so far has largely worked. Two more, uh, Brendan, and I'll let you go. It would be unfair to not ask a UNC Duke question, considering you are the official UNC Duke reporter for The Athletic. We're a little over a week away from the first matchup between these two rivals, but it'll be the first one without either, without either you know, Dean Smith or Roy Williams on the UNC bench or Coach K on that Duke bench as the, as the rivalry now will officially will usher in a new era. How different will it be next Saturday, and what and what should we expect going in when two of uh, college basketball's blue bloods reunite in Cameron Indoor Stadium? Yeah, Josh, you're you're scooping me on my column for next week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, I listen. The rivalry is going to be fine. The rivalry is still going to be there, and I'll sort of give you a sneak peek of sort of where my head is at with this whole thing is. 
we are talking so much about this new era and we're talking about will the rivalry last what's it going to look like without Kay and without coach smith and without roy williams uh i i go back to what was it before what did it look like pre-1980 you know before coach k came and you know at that point in time historically speaking north carolina nc state was a significantly bigger rivalry Yep. You know, it wasn't until the mid to late 80s that you know Duke even really became a power under Coach K, and that's when you know they start getting under Dean Smith's skin, and that's when you sort of start to see it come to true fruition. Um, so, you know, I, I think that certainly the rivalry is going to go through different phases and things, and this is going to be a new one. A large part of the reason Duke and North Carolina hate each other so much was predicated on those three men that we just talked about. If you were a North Carolina fan, you hated Coach K. You thought that he was a rat or whatever. <laughs> and if you were a Duke fan, you hated Dean Smith and you hated Roy Williams and you thought they were nasally and you thought they were cheaters and you thought they were liars. Um, but the other reason the rivalry has always worked, other than that mutual hatred, is also the fact that there's mutual respect that both these teams are good. And so that's, if anything, was going to, I think, sap the significance of this rivalry long term without you know, Coach K and, and both of the guys on UNC's side. It's can both of those programs continue to have staying power in the sport of college basketball? And if they can, there's no reason why the rivalry is going anywhere anytime soon. We saw last year with Hubert Davis and John Shire and some of the other current Duke assistant coaches, there is some frostiness there. <laughs> <laughs> um, we already saw that, and I love that. Um, but for in order for Duke UNC to be at its best, there has to be that element to the equation, and there also has to be the element of really, really, really high-level basketball. Um, if anything, I think that's probably the one people have to be more worried about. I think the frostiness element is going to be just fine. The last thing I'll ask you, and I'll get you out of here, uh, Carolina, when they return to action next week, uh, they will kick off the second part of their ACC schedule. For this team to achieve all of their goals and dreams from the preseason, what needs to take place over the last month, month and a half of the year? Yeah, you know, I, I think it is continuing to lean into who you are. You know, at the start of the year when North Carolina is going through some some struggles against, you know, Gardner-Webb and, you know, some of these teams that are not so great, Portland, whatever, it was when this team was trying to play its way. Now it's time to play Hubert Davis's way. And that way is getting Armando Bake out of post-touch every single time he's down the floor, getting R.J. Davis open for threes, letting Pete Nance do what he does, um, giving Leaky Black the toughest defensive assignment, game in and game out. And that doesn't necessarily mean just mixing up on a wing. You know, I think we've seen Hubert Davis do a really interesting job. Leaky Black was on Joe Girard the other night. Last year, he defended Kihei Clark. Like, if you have a stopper like that, Leaky's a finalist for Naismith Defensive Player of the Year. Use him like that. Um, and, and then I, I think the last thing is you got to see continued development to the bench. This is not a five-man unit that's winning a national title. But it is a team that, if all things go right, can make some noise in the tournament. But you're going to need those contributions from Seth Trimble. You're going to need his defense. You're going to need Jalen Washington to come in with foul trouble and make some shots and relieve Pete Nance and Armando Baycott. You're going to need Tyler Nickel to make some threes and maybe to fight somebody. Uh, <laughs> you need DeMarco Dunn to come in and hit threes and play defense. UNC needs to keep developing the bench, too. But if you put all of those things together, Armando gets his. You play through him. You let R.J. Davis feed off him. Caleb Love is going to have his moments. Get everyone else in there consistently and develop the bench. I still think this is a team that can win the ACC regular season. I think it's a team that's going to be a tough out in the tournament. And I think that come March, come the big tournament, 
um, North Carolina hopefully will be playing its best basketball because, you know, at its best, I don't think we've seen it yet. Um, this is probably a team that can make it back to the Final Four. Yep, and I know we're all excited to see just how this, this season does unfold uh, when they get back in action starting next week. Well, Brendan, I want to thank you uh, for taking some time to come on and, and, and talk some Carolina basketball with me. I mentioned you right for The Athletic. Where can my listeners, where can my audience find all your great work covering Carolina basketball? Yeah, certainly. Well, uh, you know, great work is a stretch, maybe, but uh, <laughs> all, all of my musings, everything's over at theathletic.com. Uh, if you don't have a subscription yet, I, I, you know, I'm biased, but I strongly encourage you to check us out, not just for my coverage, but you get national college basketball coverage and, and really every sport in the world. We've got NFL, NBA, NHL, uh, European soccer, everything that you could possibly want. So I put all my stories there. All of my stories also go up on my Twitter at Brendan on Marks. Um, I try to interact with folks. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm biased, but I, I think comprehensively we've got the best sports writing staff in the world. Awesome, Brendan. Well, thanks again uh, once again for your time, and we'll talk again uh, later down the road. Okay, buddy? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. There you go, guys. That is Brennan Marks, as I mentioned. He is the uh, the, the UNC Duke uh, reporter for The Athletic. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to get you the latest offer I have for you from DraftKings. And when we come back, I'll, break, or, or, or I'll wrap up shop on this edition of the Four Corners podcast. Four NFL teams, two conference championship games, and only a few more shots to win big on the playoffs with DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Counting down to Super Bowl 57, new customers can bet just $5 and get 200 in free bets instantly. Not a new customer? You can feel the conference championship thrills with stepped-up same-game parlays. Take your shot at an even bigger NFL payout and boost your winnings with each leg you add up to 100%. Whether you're betting on the NFC title game between the Niners and the Eagles or the AFC title game between the Chiefs and the Bengals and adding parlays between McCaffrey touchdowns, Mahomes passing yards, or Joe Burrow touchdown passes, you can do all that and more over at DraftKings Sportsbook. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use our promo code TBPN. New customers can bet just $5 on the conference championship games and get 200 free bets instantly only at DraftKings Sportsbook with promo code TBPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions do apply. See show notes for details. Really hope you guys are taking full advantage of all those great offers I've been giving you here on the Four Corners podcast. Same for Anthony over there on the Heel Tough Blog podcast. And this is going to wrap up this edition of the show. But we do encourage you guys, after you're done reading Brendan's comments on The Athletic, to visit HeelToughBlog.com where we have you covered all things Carolina basketball and all things Tar Heel football. As Tar Heel football landed another commitment earlier this week, uh, you can go back and check out Anthony's coverage of that Carolina basketball in a little bit of a lull. They're not back in action until next Wednesday. So, uh, But there will still be some stuff coming out on the basketball side of things on the website. So make sure you get over to HeelToughBlog.com. As for the podcast, guys, you know where to find us. 
every major podcasting platform. Just simply search the Four Corners podcast and we will pop up. We encourage you guys to rate and review the podcast. But more importantly, guys, we want you to hit that subscribe button. That way you don't miss any editions of the show, any interviews like this one throughout the remainder of the basketball season. What is going to wrap up this edition of the show? Once again, I want to thank Brendan Marks for taking some time to come on and talk with me. We want to thank you guys for listening. And as always, go Tar Heels. Guys, it just doesn't get any sweeter than that.